We are studying the book of Hebrews. We're getting dangerously close to the end. I have really enjoyed this uh, study. It's caused me to have to go back to the Old Testament and to look at a lot of things, um, to try to refresh my memory about why things have been done the way they've been done. It's been a wonderful study. You know, a lot of times in a large city, in the midst of um, a complicated project, uh, the, trying to build new interstates, new roads, oftentimes, as is the case, uh, they will have to build temporary roads. They'll do a lot of preparation, a lot of groundwork, wind up paving and doing things as a little detour around maybe a bridge or a section of that road that the engineer already has it in his mind exactly how uh, this new road has got to be built. But in the meantime, you can't just stop traffic. Life has to, to go on, right? So they wind up building some frontage roads or, the, or some, some little detours. But all the while, knowing that when the project is completed, they're going to tear those roads up. They're going to destroy those temporary roads because that's no longer needed, right? We've gotten to a point here in the book of Hebrews where I think maybe that that analogy will um, resonate with you. Often, what we see in the Old Testament, life had to go on. Things had to progress. They couldn't just come to a screeching halt. But those things that we saw under the Old Covenant were never meant to be permanent. They were always going to be done away with, just like those temporary roads. Once, once the bridge is finished, once the road is completely paved, we're going to, we're going to do away with these temporary things. That's what we've seen in, in, in the book of Hebrews. Under the Old Covenant, that's the first act. It was necessary. It was significant. We wouldn't even know what to do if that hadn't happened. But now we come to the second act. We come to what we call the New Testament, and we see how Jesus has fulfilled that. All of that was pointing to him, but now that's obsolete, and it's faded away. So now we're, we're going to hopefully finish up uh, chapter 9 this morning, I invite you to turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 9. We read this um, verse last week, but we're going to pick up here in verse 11. When Christ came, when Christ came, radically changed everything. Everything that preceded him and everything that would follow after him. When Christ came. Under the law, under the old covenant, no one could ever be assured of forgiveness. It's not that the, it's not that the priests were unfaithful in the work that they did. I mean, they were faithful to carry out all of their duties. And over and over and over again, they offered sacrifices. But they could never take away sin. We talked about last Sunday, that could never really cleanse the conscience there was always a sense of futility with what was happening. And any benefit that they realized 
was, was minimal at best, and it was external. Never really cleansing the conscience or, or the inner man. And they had reached the point where something had to happen, where someone had to come. If there were ever to be real forgiveness or if there was ever going to be a clean conscience, eternal redemption, something else was going to have to happen. Now, the Apostle Paul parallels a lot of these thoughts in Romans chapter 3. Let's turn over there. I, want to, I just want to show you this uh, this morning. I think it will, will help us as we finish up here with chapter 9. Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. You see, God never designed the law of Moses to cleanse us, to, to really free us from sin. In fact, he says, the law is what makes us conscious of sin. Paul said, I didn't even know what sin was. I didn't know what it meant to covet until I read in the law, thou shalt not covet. And then guess what? He says, I started coveting. I started coveting. The law doesn't really cleanse us. It rather makes us become aware of how sinful that we really are. Now, the Hebrew readers would have understood this very clearly. Uh, all of these sacrifices were just a dead-end street, if you will. Let's pick up in verse 21, Romans 3, verse 21. But now, but now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testified. All, all that was going on under the old covenant, all of that was so significant. All of the law talked about this. All of the prophets were testifying to this. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's what my version says. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's not what the original Greek text says, and we've talked about this in our study of Romans. It comes through the faith of Jesus Christ. It comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Jesus was faithful to what he and the Father had worked out. When he left heaven and he became a man, he was faithful to all that God had desired of him, faithful to keep the law, faithful to do what we could not do. So the righteousness from God comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, not our faith in Jesus Christ, although that is needed, you understand. But that's not what this passage says. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, through faith in his blood. At just the right time, Jesus came. Now look at chapter 5 and verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, 
Christ died for the ungodly. Beautiful parallel to what we see here in Hebrews chapter 9. When Christ came, just the right time. Hebrews 10 and verse 12. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is sort of a, one of those recurring themes of which there are several recurring themes throughout the book of Hebrews. What was inadequately covered in the old covenant is now perfectly realized in Jesus Christ. That's this recurring theme. So as we finish up chapter 9, what are the central points? What are the central points that he emphasizes? First of all, I want you to see that Jesus, he entered heaven itself. He entered heaven itself. Back in chapter 8, verse 1, the point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Chapter 9, verse 11, when Christ came, as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. And then over in verse 24, for Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. He entered heaven itself. Jesus has entered back into the presence of his Father, taking with him the fruits, taking with him uh, the fruits of his atoning sacrifice. And I don't, I don't mean to trivialize this, but in essence... When Jesus died, he, he, he ripped that um, curtain that, that protected the holy place from the most holy place. And now because of his sacrifice, we've been reading here in Hebrews that we, you and I, are able to go into the very presence of God. So in essence, Jesus has returned back to the Father, and the Father sees all of us, and Jesus says, they're with me. They, they can come in. They can come behind the veil. The curtain no longer applies to them because they're, they're, they're all with me. You see, the high priest couldn't take anybody with him. The high priest couldn't take anybody with him. He's the only one that got the backstage pass, and he could only go one time a year. And he had to take blood. He had to take the blood of a goat to atone for his own sacrifices before he could even begin to minister for the people. He couldn't take anyone. But with Jesus, we can enter into the very presence of God. That's another one of these recurring themes here in the book of Hebrews. Let's go back and look at the very first chapter. I just love this. Hebrews chapter 1. In the past... God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets 
at many times and in various ways. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans 3? The law and the prophets, they testified about all of this. God spoke to us in that way. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. The great benefit of this high priest and I shared this a few weeks ago, to a people that were, were wanting to maybe turn back to these, to these first century Jews who have left Judaism, started to follow Jesus, this Messiah. They, they put their faith in him, and they're following him, but now that there is some sort of tug for them to turn back, to go back to Judaism. But what the writer is telling them is that you don't have a high priest here anymore. Maybe your friends, maybe your family is saying, what do you guys do? How do you guys even worship with this new Jesus, this Messiah? You don't go to the temple. You don't have a high priest to make sacrifices. And the, the writer of Hebrews is telling them that it's a good thing that you don't have a high priest here on this earth anymore. Because he wouldn't be the kind of high priest you really, really need. He would be a high priest who had sin. He would have had to have made offerings for himself. So it's good for you that Jesus has entered heaven itself because he's perfect. And this perfect high priest is now ministering for you. This is, this is reality. This is not myth or fiction. This is reality that we're talking about this morning. Jesus has entered into heaven itself. Secondly, he offered himself. How was it that Jesus was able to enter back into heaven? Well, first of all, he had come from heaven, okay? So he's, he's going back home. But it says that he was able to enter heaven by his own blood. We just read in verse 12, he didn't enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood. It doesn't say with his own blood. It's not that Jesus had to take his blood uh, to heaven with him, but by his blood, what happened at Calvary has allowed him to enter into the Holy of Holies. Verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death or from, from useless rituals so that we may serve the living God. Look over at verse 26. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
So not only has he entered a better place, the heavenly sanctuary, but he's offered a better sacrifice. See, under the old covenant, an animal sacrifice could never really take away the sins of the people. It was just as if we've said, it was just as if they kind of kicked the can, kicked it for another year. It could never cleanse the conscience. It could never really take away their sin. But Jesus offered himself a much better sacrifice than what they had seen day after day and year after year. All of those sacrifices just reminded them of their sins. Why do I have to take another goat? Why do we have to sacrifice another bull? It was just a constant reminder of their sins day after day after day. And you could almost hear the people say, Oh, if there were only a Lamb of God who could take away the sins of the world. (laughs) And that was Jesus. That's what he came to do. Look at verse 15. For this reason... Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Let me share this with you because I think this is something that maybe not everyone understands. It took me a long time, I think, to understand this. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, God had written his law on tablets of stone, right? Moses comes down from the mountain. He gives the law to the people. There's some stuff that happened in in between, but we don't have time to go into all that. But ultimately, he comes down. Here is the word of God. And God said, if you'll keep my laws... You will be my people, and I will be your God, right? And and what did the people say? Yes, we'll do it. We can do it. So listen to me. They entered into a covenant with God, and we'll read about a little bit more about that here in a second, how Moses uh, enacted this covenant. But they entered into a covenant with God based upon law. Are you following me? You keep my laws, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. They said we can do it. They entered into a covenant with God. So when the Israelites broke the law, and they did often, when they sinned, when they transgressed, they broke their covenant with God. Because their relationship with God was based on a covenant of law. So when God said, thou shalt not bear false witness, don't don't tell a lie, and they told a lie, they broke covenant with God. Now follow me, listen to me. When you and I sin today, and we do, we don't want to, We, we, we try hard not to, The Holy Spirit of God is living inside of us and he's helping us to say no to ungodliness. But there are times when we're honest with ourselves that we fall short of his glory and we make a mistake and we sin. When you and I sin, we are not breaking covenant with God. We haven't broken our covenant with God. 
because we're not under a covenant of law. We are under covenant of faith, just like Abraham was. Abraham trusted God. Abraham believed God, and the Bible says it was credited to him as righteousness. What was? What was righteousness? What what did God look down and see was righteous about him? His faith, his trust, his belief. So when you and I sin today, oh God, help us not to. But when we do, we're not breaking our covenant with God because we're not under a covenant of law. We live by faith. Does that make sense? So what's going on here in, in, in these next few verses? I almost hate to, to get off on too much of a, a side road here. It almost sounds like he, he, he jumps tracks here. He's been talking about covenant, old covenant, new covenant. And now in verse 16, he says, in the case of a will, that's, at least that's what my version says, in the case of a will, It's the same Greek word that can be translated covenant or will, either one. And there's some difference between a covenant and a will, but I don't think we lose anything uh, with believing one or the other. I think they both work fine. Uh, In in the case of a will, you have a, a benefactor, you have a beneficiary, and you have, uh, in the old language, what they call a bequest. You have a benefactor, that would be the Lord himself. You have beneficiaries, that would be all of those who are redeemed. And then you have a bequest, what, what, is, what is he leaving, what is he giving to us? And that would be the blessing of eternal redemption, okay? So, so let's just read through this very quickly. In the case of a will or a covenant, It is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. Now, this is why in Luke chapter 15, when we read the story of the prodigal son, this is why that would have been so scandalous to those first century readers of this because the younger son He asks his father for his share of the inheritance while his father is still alive. That would have blown their minds. In essence, I mean, because you don't don't get your father's inheritance until what? Until your father dies, right? You got to wait for the old man to kick the bucket before you get your share of the land. Get your money. But the younger son goes and says, I want mine now. In essence, I just assumed you were dead. (laughs) Isn't that what he's saying to his father? I just assumed you were dead because I want mine now. See, a, a, a will doesn't go into effect until the one who made it has died, until the benefactor has died. This is why, verse 18, even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, 
He took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll, and he sprinkled all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. They said, we'll do it. They entered into this covenant of law with God, and it had to be, uh, it couldn't be put into effect without blood. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. None of this could happen without blood. That, that's the whole emphasis here. Whether we think of a, a covenant or whether we think of a, uh, a, a testamentary will of some sort, what he's saying is that none of this could happen without blood. The covenant is ratified by blood. Even the sanctuary was sanctified by blood. He sprinkled all, all of it with blood. And the first century reader would have, would have understood all of this. The death of an innocent victim for the provision of the guilty was something that they were very, very familiar with. And apart from the death of Jesus and the shedding of his blood, he says, now there would be no forgiveness. Verse 12 says this was once for all. Look at verse 28. And so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. It happened one time. You see, the, the, the high priest under the old covenant had to take sacrifices and make them again and again and again, year after year after year. And that does not have to happen with Jesus. Because if it did, he says, he would have to suffer many times throughout all the ages, time and time again. But Jesus doesn't die on the cross time and time again for our sins. He did that one time on a hill called Golgotha, and it satisfied for all time the penalty for our sins. What's, what's Jesus doing now in heaven as our high priest? What, what's he up to? You know, he told his disciples he's going to go and prepare a place for us. I suspect that he's, he's doing that. But he speaks to God on our behalf as our advocate. Uh, he, he prays for us. He exercises his ministry of intercession. Did you ever stop to think about that? That Jesus prays for you? That Jesus speaks to the Father on your behalf. Oh, I, I know he's had to go to the Father several times for me. God, he, he's one of us. He loves us. He's trying. He's made another mistake, but don't hold it against him. He's covered in the blood. He's put his faith in me. And the Father says, he's not condemned. That's good enough. It's good enough for me. Jesus entered heaven itself. He offered himself. And then lastly this morning, he obtained for us 
and eternal redemption. Let's go back to verse 12. Man, there's so much in verse 12. We keep reading it. He didn't enter by the means of blood, the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. To redeem is to set free by the paying of a price or a ransom. We, we are by nature slaves to sin. That's what the Bible says. By our flesh, our fleshly nature, we are slaves to sin. But we are redeemed by the paying of a price, which is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So that, listen to this, we have been set free from the law of sin and death. We're no longer slaves to sin, and we have been set free so that we can be slaves all over again. But this time we're slaves to Jesus, slaves to righteousness. Think about, if you will, the story of Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph? From uh, the book of Genesis, Joseph um, had some dreams. He told them to his brothers, and they didn't like those dreams too well. And so they said, let's kill him. And uh, the older brother, uh, he said, no, let's don't kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. <laughs> let's, don't, let's don't do that much to him, but let's just sell him into slavery. So they sold Joseph into slavery. He was a slave to the uh, Ishmaelites, I believe. But then they came, someone came along and redeemed him from the Ishmaelites so that he now could be a slave to uh, Pharaoh in Potiphar's house. And that turned out a whole lot better for him, didn't it? I mean, he had, he had some rocky moments, but that turned out pretty good in the end. He became the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. But the point is, he was sold into slavery. He was redeemed out of it so he could become a slave Again, and that's what happens with us. We're slaves to sin by nature. We, we want to do what we want to do. I like what I like. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And it's that constant battle of the flesh. And we've been set free from that so that we could serve Jesus Christ as our master and as our king. And what a beautiful thing it is to serve the living God. Amen, walls? Wow. What a privilege it is to serve God. In his grace and in his mercy, he looks down and he says, She is mine. He is mine. I have loved them with an everlasting love. Nothing in them was redeemable. I'm not redeeming them because of how smart he is, how intellectual she is, how wonderful they are. He just chose to love us. He chose to love us. I made the mistake of wearing my watch this morning. My time is up. Let me, let me summarize another sermon for you, okay? This is a sermon I could have preached. Maybe I should have preached. You're saying anything but what you just did. I don't know. 
Look at verse 26. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared. Now he has appeared. Think about the incarnation, Jesus Christ leaving heaven, becoming a baby, growing up, and he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and, and men and, and all of that. He has now appeared. That's the first point. Now look at verse 24. Christ didn't enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. So he appeared. Now he's gone back to heaven. He appears to God on our behalf. Look at verse 28. So Christ was sacrificed to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time. He appeared, he now appears in heaven, and he will appear a second time. What's he going to do that second time? He's not going to bear sin, but he will bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. To those who are waiting for him. You know, when Jesus comes back a second time, it will be the scariest day in the life of so many. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to enter through the narrow gate. For broad is the gate and wide is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through that. But he says, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. So, so many, that would be the, it'll be the worst day that they've ever seen. But for those of us who have longed for his appearing, <laughs> it's going to be the sweetest, most awesome. Uh, the, the sound of the trumpet blast is going to be, you talk about music in your ears. It's going to be the sweetest day you've ever had because that will usher in an eternity in the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There is such a difference when Christ came. When Christ came. We, we talked about the woman at the well last Wednesday night. For those of you who were in the class, we talked about the woman at the well. She'd been at the well many times. She'd drawn water from that well many, many times. But when Jesus came, Everything was different. Everything in her life was different from that moment forward when Christ came. Has Christ come to you? It, can, can you point to a time in your life when, when Christ came to you and you began to know him and you entered into a relationship with him? Can you point to that time? Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. Listen to this. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. 